Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become grittier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Blue Grid Podcast, and today my guest is Major Rigby or Nike. We recently had a chance to talk during the Women's Air and Space Power Symposium, and it is an honor to interview you today for the podcast. Good morning. Good morning, Anya. How are you? Good. I know you have told your story of struggles and grief many times. Could you share it with the Blue Grid audience? Absolutely. I'm a B-52 WIZO by trade, a weapon systems officer or navigator. And in 2014, I deployed, deployed loosely to Guam with my squadron at the time. B-52s were doing six-month rotations through Guam in support of the Pacific for a continuous bomber presence mission. So it was my squadron's turn to go. So we left in March of 2014, and I returned in late September of 2014. Before I headed out, my then-husband and I were chatting a bit because I was attending SOS just before deployment. I'll be home for about a month and a half would deploy and then it looked like I would attend an upgrade program when I came back and I would be gone for a few more months right away. So we took some time before the deployment to go on vacation, but we knew we were kind of looking at you know a period of reintegration with me being gone for I think at the time we thought eleven out of the next thirteen months. At the time how long had you been married? We had been together since two thousand five when we met. But we had only been married for about a year and a half at that point. We had chosen to kind of put the Air Force first and with a lot of different training schools and a lot of different upgrades and different things I had to do. We just never really saw a good time to take time off, you know, to plan a wedding and do these things. And John had been in the Air Force himself. So he really understood, you know, kind of what it took, I guess, to be a young person in the flying squadron, get the right qualifications, you know, to be combat mission ready and qualified. So we didn't really have a lot of pressure. So we had only been married about a year and a half at that time. So, you know, still kind of new navigating that, but not new navigating our relationship together. So when I returned from deployment in September, my sister was getting married and she was just having a small wedding in the Dominican Republic. So we, along with my parents and her husband's parents, all flew down there to meet them. And we had been home for three weeks or so at that point. So we were still in that period of adjustment, coming back into kind of what had been, you know, his face alone for the last seven months and, you know, moving back to the States. And, you know, I didn't really notice too much when I got back. You know, John was a little thinner, but he had been working at the airport in town out on the ramps and I know like work 12 hour shifts when I was gone and you know, I was probably just getting a little healthier while I was gone. So I didn't think anything of it. But while we were traveling, he would complain that he had some pain and that it felt like constipation, but it would kind of like just floor him for the day. He would get up and he'd be kind of almost doubled over in pain. And we're in the Dominican Republic. There's not a lot of places for us to go. We talked about flying home early, but he didn't want to do that. He wanted to stick with what the plan was. So he, you know, kind of toughed it out a bit. We had returned. And as we got back to the States, we had flown into Minneapolis. I was stationed at Minot at the time. And just because of the travel out of Minot, it was always interesting. 
but we could save so much time by flying in the Minneapolis and actually driving back to Minot um, mm-hmm. versus some of the insane layovers we were going to look at to try to get back and get the right connecting flights. So we planned, you know, just a, a day in Minneapolis and, you know, we were doing some things and he could barely walk. It was getting to a point where it's like this normally healthy man is now unable to walk very far. So we went back to the hotel got up pretty early the next morning and drove home and made appointments on the road so that he could go in and see his PCM. For B-52s, we also, as a nuclear-capable bomber, participate in a lot of different nuke exercises throughout the year. And our largest one, which is STRATCOM-wide, is Global Thunder. And that usually comes up in October, November timeframe. So I was basically coming home from my sister's wedding to go right into this large exercise. And we practice alert. We stay in the alert shack and our jets will be basically ready to go. So I was waiting for the call to go into that while he's navigating these medical appointments. In the meantime, while I'm doing this exercise, he sees his PCM, who just to be on the safe side, sent him downtown to get a colonoscopy. In the meantime, as part of the exercise, my crew along with some others, was part of a fly-off. And then we were part of an additional exercise after that. So I wasn't going to be home for a few more days. And our jet ends up breaking. So I'm at kind of an undisclosed location. He's going to colonoscopy. A friend was taking him. And I call him afterwards to see how everything went. And he says, it's fine. Everything's fine. You know, there's no problem. They gave me some medication. I'll explain later, but everything's good. You know, I'm good to go. My little sister was a nurse, still is a nurse, and had talked to him at one point about, well, this is what it could be. And of course, you know, I guess if you WebMD enough um, or talk to enough people, everything can kind of lead to something worse. You start diagnosing yourself over WebMD. So we were a little nervous that, you know, what if this was the worst end of the spectrum? But he seemed to think, nope, after talking to this doc and having the colonoscopy, everything was fine. So we get my jet fixed. We fly back home after debrief and getting everything packed up. I get home. It's about four o'clock in the morning and I set an alarm because I've got to go in the next day to do a simulator event as part of my annual check ride. I remember I had set my alarm for 10 a.m. because I wanted to leave the house by noon. My sim was later that afternoon. That would give me some time just to get prepped with my partner. And I remember it clear as day. John sat down on the bed and woke me up and it was 9.45. And he said, hey, we need to talk. Hmm. And I don't know that anyone who's ever heard the words, we need to talk, that it's ever like a positive thing, that you don't expect some bad news in some sense. So I sat up and he looked at me and he said, so after the colonoscopy, everything's not okay. I didn't want to tell you on the phone. I knew you were working but it's cancer. And he said, but don't worry. It is very early stage. They think it's fine. We've got to go in to see an oncologist today and we've got to go see my PCM and they'll tell us more. I said, okay. You know, I really didn't know what to think at that point. You know, I just kind of glommed onto the words, this is really early. It's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. So we went to the doctor They ordered some more tests. They gave us an appointment for Monday. This was a Friday. So we kind of had this news to sit with over the weekend. So they did a bunch of scans and some tests. We saw his PCM. Really didn't have any new news at that point. And we were just kind of waiting for Monday. So we went in on Monday morning. What was the weekend like? Tense. Because, you know, it had still come off this period where we were still kind of you know, doing this reintegration thing, you know, besides traveling and the exercise, it was like things were finally just going to about to start getting back to normal, you know, and here I am kind of like photively Googling everything that has to do with colorectal cancer and kind of learning as much as I can. And, you know, what we originally thought, you know, early stage was, you know, could be very treatable. Like stage two was actually have better survival rates than stage one. And there's actually a stage zero with colorectal cancer, which is very early signs. So we didn't really know where he fell yet at that point because they didn't want to stage him until he had all these scans back. But, you know, I'm thinking, well, early stages, it's got to be really good, right? So Monday, we go in for this appointment and, you know, we're 
you know, think, think happy thoughts, right? And we meet with his radiation oncologist who looks at us and he just says, has anyone talked to you about your scans yet? And we said, no, you know, we're, you're the first person we're seeing today. And he was like, okay. And his demeanor kind of changed and his eyes kind of got, you know, and I think about it now, they definitely kind of softened. He had kind of a bit of a sad look to his face. Mm. And he pulled John's PET scan up. And this was the only time I ever saw one of his scans, but it just lit up his liver and his lungs. The cancer had metastasized there and he just had tumors all over the place. Oh my goodness. And he told us, you know, I'm so sorry to tell you this because of this, because of kind of the numbers of the tumors and the fact that they've metastasized so far away from the primary tumor we're stage 4B. This isn't going to get better. And he didn't say, I think he could kind of see from John's face that that was about all he could take at the time. Mm -hmm. So he didn't come out and tell him, you know, he was terminal from the start, but that kind of diagnosis, you know, it, it doesn't get any better than that. It's not going to get any better. And stage 4B is really all about palliative care, quality of life, you know, what does the patient want? Do you want to fight this? You know, how can we make you comfortable in these days? They didn't really give us a time frame. He asked if John wanted to hear one. He said no. He did not. So we met with his oncologist for chemo. And they came up with a plan because at that point for stage 4B, really you're just looking at chemotherapy. They won't do radiation at that point. So we met with his radiation oncologist. I think we set up an appointment for that week and he started getting chemo. His chemotherapy treatments started out pretty easy. He would go in for a full day where he would receive some targeted therapies first, and then he would receive his chemotherapy treatment itself. And that would take about eight to 10 hours, just depending on blood work and how he was feeling. And then he would come home with a pump where he would continue to receive chemotherapy for the next 48 hours. The nice thing about it was by this point in 2014, he could go home with this pump. This normally would have laid him up in the hospital for, you know, three to five days to receive the same treatment. So it was nice to be able to bring him home you know, he could kind of do whatever he wanted around the house. And he had kind of this over the shoulder, you know, almost fanny pack with this little pump that would attach through a port in his chest to give him this medication. The first couple treatments he took okay. Not a lot of side effects, but by the third or fourth, it would make him really tired. He would come home and hit the couch and just almost sleep for the next 48 hours. He had a lot of exhaustion from it. It took a lot out of his system. What was that like for you to face that initial stage of treatment with him? You know, I think for a little while, I was just in shock. You know, it was definitely not what I was expecting coming home from deployment. You know, I was expecting to kind of hit some milestones in my career, you know, instructor upgrade, you know, potential to consider weapons school you know, some other things like that. And now all of a sudden I was kind of learning to navigate being an officer as well as being a primary caregiver. John had always taken care of me at home to make sure that I had everything, you know, was set up for success at work. He took on a lot of the responsibilities to take care of our home, you know, groceries. He loved to cook. So he was always cooking dinner for us taking care of our pet and he always kind of took the lead on that so it added some extra challenges for me because now not only was I a CMR a combat mission ready B-52 crew member and trying to keep up with my currencies and requirements at work for all of our different mission sets but I was also navigating how to be a caregiver to someone facing a terminal diagnosis and you know still doing everything to keep our home running in a place that might not is great, but it can be very challenging in terms of finding different services. It's not a big city. 
So there's a lot of times where you have to drive pretty far, you know, to find certain things. It was challenging to say the least. I think emotionally, I was trying my hardest to stay positive about it for John. He did not like to talk about it. He, I think, was more comfortable in denial about the fact of what he was facing. So it was challenging because that kind of bled over to me. You know, I I couldn't talk about it at home because he didn't want to, you know, he would kind of shut any of that conversation down. It was almost like the only time we talked about cancer was when we were physically at the cancer treatment center or we were seeing a doctor about it. But otherwise it was like he wanted to continue, you know, almost as he had been. And that hadn't been something that we discussed. It was just kind of his reaction to the treatment. So it was challenging. I didn't have a lot of outlets to talk about it or share about it. And it's not something that everyone faces. So I think it was really hard for the people around me to empathize with what I was going through. It's not something that you deal with every day. And I think on top of the, you know, difference as well, I think you see sometimes by being the female, you know, by being a service woman with a partner on the outside, it's not always the usual construct. (laughs) You know, we usually have servicemen with spouses at home, you know, some who are able to stay home and take care of kids, but it's sometimes different to navigate when you're a service woman with a partner, you know, who's not in the military. So I don't know that a lot of folks really knew how to react to us. So it was a bit challenging. He continued chemotherapy for quite some time. Then a few months later, probably about six months later or so, he had a new set of scans done. And his scans, from looking at them, his scans told the doctors that it looked like what we were doing was working, that the chemotherapy was shrinking the tumors that he had, and he was having a really good response to it. So they wanted to continue the treatments as they had been and, you know, check his scans in another few months and kind of make a plan from there. So that time went by and we had some other good scans. And at that point, the metastasized tumors in his liver and lungs were pretty much all gone, save for maybe two tiny spots. The chemotherapy had worked on them. And now we were faced with a new decision. The primary tumor had shrunk, but obviously was still there. And the doctors that he was seeing in consultation with the Mayo Clinic recommended that the best course of action at that point would be for him to have surgery to remove the primary tumor and then continue with chemo and then add radiation as well, and hopefully kind of put him in a state where, you know, we could kind of keep it at bay. Stage four colorectal cancer at the time had an 11% survival rate at five years. So we were up against some pretty stiff odds and we were starting to think that maybe we were beating them. You know, maybe we were going to be part of that 11%. We had a big decision in our hands. The recommendation from his doctor's was basically since the metastasized tumors were shrinking and were gone, that he was now presenting the same way a stage two colorectal patient would appear. And the recommendations there would be to do this surgery, remove that primary tumor, do the chemo, do radiation, and that would be the course of treatment. So while they often didn't see this same response for stage 4B, that was the recommendation. Treat him as he was a stage two because you'll never stage down with cancer. So we decided to go for it. I left that decision up to John, what he wanted to do. But he said, you know, he wanted to try to beat this if he could, you know, let's do it. So we met with a doctor in Bismarck, North Dakota, which is about an hour and a half, two hours south of Mina. He did some labs, took a look at everything, and we scheduled surgery for that summer. We had planned, basically, he would be in the hospital for about a week, and then he would come home, he would have some recovery time, and then he would have to go back. Because what they would do 
would be to go in, literally remove that section, the colon that had that cancer in it. They would have to give him a colostomy for the time being, let that area kind of heal up a little bit, and then they would go back in and reverse the colostomy. And, you know, hopefully from there he would heal up. So they did all of that. But after that second surgery to reverse the colostomy, John had some complications. Right before that, I actually had the opportunity to go TDY uh, to attend the academics portion for instructor upgrade. So one of our family members came out. He stayed with John for the two and a half weeks that I was going to be TDY. And it was after that second surgery. Well, by the time that I came home, John had deteriorated a lot. And he was basically spending all day in bed. He couldn't really get out of bed at all without help. He wasn't eating at all. His system wasn't working, so he really wasn't eliminating at all. And it was hard sometimes to even get water and stuff down him. What were the complications you mentioned earlier? He was definitely not himself. He was complaining a lot that he had a lot of pain, that he, again, felt very constipated. But he wasn't eating a lot. So, you know, he could barely get any food down him, mostly just water and some Gatorade. So quite a few times we went to the emergency room in town. They just said, oh, you know, he's constipated. We're just going to do a couple procedures and it'll be okay. And they would send us back home. We got to a point where we also called his doctor that had done the surgery and we went to see him and he said, no, you know, he's okay. He did an exam, you know, he'll be okay. You know, but this is a man who was, you know, very able-bodied, even through chemo, could still kind of get around and walk himself into the chemo center, no matter how bad he felt. And now, you know, I could barely get him out of the car into a wheelchair. And, you know, I'm doing my best to advocate to doctors, you know, on his behalf, but everyone's kind of telling us, no, he's going to be fine. He's going to be fine. You know, and I remember at one point in the emergency room, just being like, can you please just scan, just like do a scan, like do a CT or whatever is right. Just to make sure there's no blockages that everything's okay. He had this surgery. And they'd say, no, 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 he's fine. He's fine. He's just constipated. Take this medicine and come back. Mm -hmm. was like, well, you know, I I fly a (laughs) B-52. If you want bombs on target on time, you know, I'm your girl. But I don't know medicine. It's definitely not my field and definitely not in John's case. So we went home. We saw his oncologist again. And before they wanted to start treating him again with chemo, they wanted to do some scans. So we did those. We were able to get John there and he was able to tolerate the procedure, get his new scans done. And the following week, when we went in to see his oncologist, he was still kind of in the same shape, you know, could could barely walk. And his oncologist kind of took a look at him and was like, you know, we need to talk. Has anyone talked to you about these scans again? And I'm thinking, here we go again. But what he saw on the scans was that there was kind of an area in John's pelvis that was very suspicious. And he said, you know, it looks like a potential sign of infection. You need to get back to Bismarck. You need to go to the emergency room. We're going to call ahead and, you know, alert his doctor who had done the surgery, but he needs to be seen ASAP. We're very concerned about this. So I loaded him in the car and drove to Bismarck as quickly as I could (laughs) you know, 90 miles away. And we took him to the ER. They did some more tests and looked at it and they immediately took him in for emergency surgery. And what had happened was the anastomosis, the area where they had reconnected his colon after removing the tumor, it had failed. So he was feeling constipated, but all of that was kind of collecting in one area. Mm. And he had That whole area that the doctor had seen on the scan was all infected tissue. It had basically eaten his tailbone. So they went in, they cleaned everything out as best they could. They removed the infected and rotted tissue. And he had about three or four other surgeries after that to continue to go in and clean this area out. But now we were dealing with, 
you know, this wound, he, he couldn't sit up anymore. He had this wound kind of on his backside. He couldn't lay down comfortably. We were constantly switching out mattresses on his hospital bed to try to make him more comfortable, kind of piling him up with some blankets so he had something to lean on. And because of this infection, it was so painful that he had to basically almost have IV pain meds throughout the day just to be able to control his pain even laying down. So he was hospitalized for about two months in Bismarck. So we spent that time medical TDY trying to kind of navigate, you know, the medical system and, and try care. And a few times, you know, being told, you know, because there was a changeover in the fiscal year and we were in a period of sequestration still. So budgets hadn't been approved. TDY budgets especially hadn't been approved. So it was challenging. I'm dealing with TRICARE. I'm dealing with the med group to allow me to stay there and be medical TDY with him. And then when he was ready to be discharged, he was still in so much pain that oral pain meds were not enough to take the edge off for him. He could barely walk without getting IV meds. So he had to be transferred to an inpatient care facility. He had no surgical need to be in the hospital any longer. So we basically had to move him to a nursing home, which at least allowed us to get back to Minot. I could get back to a little bit of a semblance of work. But the challenging part for us at that point was through all of this, up until this point, we did not qualify for a move through EFMP. EFMP, and I don't know the differences with the program now if this has changed because this was 2014, 2015, and I know there have been some changes, but at the time, it just simply looked at what medical services do you need today? And since he could receive chemotherapy in town, there was no reason to move him. The side effects that he was feeling from chemotherapy were really not conducive to the climate in Minot. He had a pretty rough time with the cold. He had very, very bad cold sensitivity. So even going to let our dogs outside, you know, was enough to kind of give him pain for the rest of the day. He had a lot of neuropathy, so he would lose feeling in his extremities a lot. Doubled with the cold sensitivity, made it really challenging for him to leave the house. We'd have to bundle him up really, really well just to leave because, you know, he'd have to get out of the car to get inside the cancer center. And even that minute that he'd be outside was enough to, you know, kind of make a very challenging situation for him and put him in pain for the rest of the day. So it was very challenging for me because that put basically everything on my shoulders at the time. You know, just simply taking out the trash was going to be too much. It would lay him up for the rest of the day. You know, if one of our dogs was outside and didn't want to come in and I had to go out and get them, he couldn't help with that. Simply bringing groceries inside would be too much to have to be outdoors. Did anyone help you through that time? Did anyone move in with you or you ended up doing everything by yourself? Uh, pretty much by myself. We both grew up in the Northeast. John was an army brat and then joined the Air Force himself. And a lot of his family was spread out across the Northeast. My family was in the Northeast as well. And you know, now we're kind of in Minot, North Dakota, where we don't have a lot of family around to help. And the folks that we knew in town, a lot of folks that he knew from the airport were like him working 12-hour shifts, or like me, were Air Force and didn't always have a lot of free time to kind of do those kind of tasks and stuff for us. So a lot of it fell to me. And a lot of it was challenging as well, because for me at the time, I think being an aviator, I'm very used to kind of compartmentalizing things and just taking care of it myself. So I was still learning how to ask for help. You know, I didn't think that those were things I could ask people to do. If I could take the trash out, why would I bother someone else to come over every week and wheel our trash to the curb? So I had a lot of I would say maybe misplaced pride about making sure that everything was going okay and kind of caring for him on top of everything I was doing at work. I didn't realize until much, much later how much of a burden I was putting on myself mm -hmm. and how much that impacted me. Now that he had a need medically to move, 
because the wound care that he needed and the treatments he needed, it was going to be very tough to keep up with that in Minot. We qualified for EFMP for a move through EFMP. So my assignment officer at the time helped work that out. And we looked at moving cross country to an assignment in Pensacola, Florida. We had been stationed there before when I was in undergraduate navigator training. And now I was going to get to go back as an instructor. So when I got there, I was very, very open with my leadership about what I was facing. Because while I was in Minot, I felt like I was struggling to find my place within the unit. Folks wanted to kind of be helpful, but they were making a lot of decisions on my behalf. And they weren't always the best decisions for me, you know, looking back on them. So I wanted to be open with leadership about what I was experiencing. That when I came to work, I wanted to be able to focus on work and not, you know, have someone try to make things easier for me, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to be able to just go to work and kind of feel a little bit normal while I was there. So I was able to do that. I worked a job that allowed me a little more leverage over my own schedule. I actually worked in the scheduling shop. So I had a very routine schedule myself about when I was writing the schedule that helped me plan. And my supervisor helped me plan that around when John had chemotherapy. And then I would fly or I would teach Sims kind of in between. So for a while, we continued on. John was not receiving chemotherapy at the time because of the wound. Chemotherapy will break down new wounds. So you really want them to be healed before you continue. Otherwise, you could just look at this kind of perpetual state where the wound is never healing, never getting any better. But he did have a team who was very creative about getting him as healthy as possible. His primary care physician there got us hooked up with some wound care specialists. They actually put him in a decompression chamber, which can help speed up wound healing. So he got to go do that. He got to go hop in the chamber where normally they would take divers who were you know, suffering the bends or something. So he got to do some treatments in there. He got to know the team there. And actually really looked forward to spending time with them. He could take a book. Sometimes they would just talk and they would share stories about being in the Navy. He would share stories from you know, his time in the Air Force. And when he finished there, they actually had like a, a graduation ceremony for him and they printed a certificate. Mm. He had been their patient with the most dives, I guess, mm. overall. So overall, our quality of life improved a bit. You know, because it wasn't so cold, he was able to get out a little bit for shorter periods of time. And for him, being near the water was always really great mentally and emotionally. So that helped a lot to be able to take him, you know, even if it was just for a drive to take him to somewhere that he liked to see. But over time, because we weren't doing chemotherapy, his condition with cancer was worsening. And you couldn't do chemotherapy because of all the healing he had to do. Yeah. And it was kind of, you know, pick one or the other. It was taking a long time, but we were seeing progress with his wound. But it was a trade-off. You know, now we were seeing metastasized tumors were coming back. And I remember sitting down with his oncologist one day, and I kind of lost it because they were both talking about, you know, well, we'll keep monitoring. And I just looked at them and I said, how much longer are we going to monitor? I can't monitor this anymore. Every time we do scans, there's more cancer. And I said, I'm not a doctor, but I don't think this wound is going to kill you right now. It's under control. It's not infected. It's just slowly healing. But this cancer, that will. We need to make a decision. You have to pick. And they talked about it a little bit and said, talk about it a bit more. Come back next week and let me know what you'd like to do. And over that time, John decided, well, we'll try chemo again. Back at home, things were getting harder for him. You know, he would put on a brave face when he would go see the doctors, but he was struggling a lot more. He would have these moments that I took to calling like, it almost seemed like an Alzheimer's patient will sometimes kind of have a sunset at night mm -hmm. where they will get mm -hmm. a little bit worse, you know, being a little bit more forgetful where during the daytime, their recall can be a little sharper, you know, and they seem to maybe come back and be themselves a little bit more. He seemed to almost be having that same kind of symptoms. And it would get to a point where you could tell that John wasn't there anymore. And I don't know what it was. You'd have these moments where he was really determined 
and he would kind of gather things from around the house. You know, like a bucket would need to be next to the couch and then he'd have to have an extension cord on the dining room table. And if he, you know, had some silverware lined up, you know, wherever, <laughs> you know, on like the entryway table, he'd constantly have to be busy placing things around the house. And I'd ask him what he was doing. He's like, I'm just working, I'm working. You know, it was very odd behavior. And I didn't know how to describe it, you know, and I would tell his doctor and John would kind of look at me, he's like, that doesn't happen. And I'm like, you know, it does. I'm not crazy. I watched this happening at night and no one really knew what to make of it. And I would try to describe it and I would feel like I was going crazy, <laughs> you know, because it's like, it's not a cancer symptom, but it, to me, it was like something else is going on. Something is going on. And I was very concerned that it had spread to his brain you know, because something was triggering this strange behavior. So again, I kind of felt like when he was sick and kind of constipated and my not, and I was kind of felt like I was shouting from the rooftops for someone to, you know, do a scan and figure out what was going on before we learned that he had this infection. I, I kind of felt like I was there again. I see this. Listen to me, like, just come over to my house and watch this. Like, I don't know what's going on, but it's not right. So we finally, we did another set of scans. They did an MRI of his head. Luckily, there were no signs of um, cancer. But they, you know, opted to start chemo again. And when we did that, he had this one chemo treatment, where I just remember it going really, really well. It was like, all of a sudden, this man who didn't have any appetite, wanted a foot long sub from Subway, and he ate every bite. And then he sent me back to get him chips and a cookie. And he came home and he wanted his favorite sandwich and he wanted two of them and he wanted a big glass of milk. And, you know, it was like, maybe things are starting to go well after this you know month of chemo, maybe we're starting to fight this again. But that night he had another one of these moments where he was, you know, working on things where he kind of had this sunset again and it went on and on. I mean, it was probably about two o'clock in the morning and he's still up and he's turning lights on and he's turning things off and he's got to put this here and there's stuff everywhere. And the dogs are kind of looking at me like, what's going on? So I'm trying to calm them and put them outside. And at one point I'm sitting on the bed and he's in the bedroom and I look at him I'm like, John, please, will you please try to lay down? And he turns around and looks at me and he like threw his arms up in the air, screamed and like fell over and started seizing. And I kind of immediately jumped into like self-made buddy care mode. You know, we laugh sometimes about some of this training, but it immediately kicked in. And I'm you know, making sure that his airway's clear. He's, you know, not going to choke on anything. I grab his cell phone was close by. I call 911. By that point, he had kind of started, stopped seizing, but he was still unconscious. Um, so they're talking me through it while they're sending an ambulance. And in the meantime, you know, I made sure he was safe. I put the dogs outside and I unlocked the door so the paramedics could get in. And... When they got there, he had kind of come to and he had sat up and, you know, by this point he was pretty weak. He had lost a lot of weight. He was maybe 150 pounds, you know, and he's like six one, So he's this tall, tall guy, but he's, you know, almost skin and bones. And the paramedics are trying to assess him and see what's wrong. And they want to take him in because I've told them he has terminal cancer. So they want to take him to the hospital, make sure that he's okay. So they're trying to get him on the gurney and he is fighting them with every ounce of strength that he has. And one of these paramedics had to be at least six, five and was like a bodybuilder. He like, he's fighting this paramedic and they're looking at me and they're like, oh my gosh. I'm like, yeah, I know. I don't know where he's getting the strength from, but like, this is, you know, what I see at night sometimes, you know, it's just like superhuman almost. So they get him to the hospital and he kind of come to a little bit and they're asking him some questions and you know he's answering things but I can tell because I know John that what he's answering their questions like he's somewhere else if that makes sense like he's not with me you know in 2017 at the time the hospital that he was at was in a partnership with an organization called Andrews Institute so there were signs everywhere that had the word Andrews on them. So when they're asking where he is, he's telling them he's at Andrews. But he's telling me other things that tell me he's like back in time when he was stationed at Andrews Air Force Base. When he's telling me these things, like I know these little details. So it's kind of making sense to the doctor. Like he's answering enough. 
but he said something and I can't remember what it was, but he answered one of the doctor's questions and the doctor kind of looked and was like, really? Where was that? Like, what was the date or, you know, what was this? And they realized that he's not all there. You know, he's not recovered from this. So they said, well, you know, we want to monitor you for the night just to make sure that you're okay. And the next day I went in and he was still kind of in this foggy place and I wasn't comfortable taking him home yet. Our best friends were also stationed in Pensacola at the time. And I had talked to them earlier that day and they said, if you're not comfortable taking him home, don't like, I think we need to get more scans. There's something going on, you know, and you need to advocate for him and we will help you do that. So we went back to the hospital and we told them we're not bringing him home. We want more scans. His oncologist was away at a conference. So we had one of his colleagues in. She thought everything looked okay, but as we talked to her and kind of explained, she was willing to do some more scans. And that was on a Wednesday night. They did the scans the next day. And then by Friday morning, his niece had flown in to help me out. And I told her what was going on. And she came in to help. And she said, you know, I'll help talk some sense into him. Like we need to figure out what's going on because he really didn't want to be in the hospital. He just wanted to go home. He didn't want any more tests, but we needed to find out what was going on so we could best, you know, care for him and best assess what was going on to keep him as comfortable as possible. And we were on our way to the hospital to see him when we got a call from his doctors. And they said, can you come in? We have a team that we need to talk to. Can you be in in the next half an hour? And we said, we're, we're already on the way there. And they said, okay, you know, we need to talk to you about John. When you get here, come to this special area and, and they'll bring you back to the offices. I said, okay. And when we got there, we noticed that the area they took us to was palliative care. We didn't think about it at first because we had kind of been in this palliative situation where we're trying to keep him as comfortable as possible with chemo. So when they sat down, they took us in this really nice lounge area and the doctors came in to talk to us. And all of a sudden it started making sense. They told us when they did these scans, the cancer was back and it was back with a vengeance. While there were no tumors in his brain, his lungs were basically filled with tumors. They were surprised that he was able to breathe as well as he could. And his liver at that point was more cancer than it was liver. And the reason he would kind of have these episodes, mostly at night, they couldn't explain why it was at night, but the reason he was having these episodes was because his body could no longer filter out toxins. Mm. So over time, this toxic, the stuff in his system that normally our liver and our kidneys are filtering out was traveling through his bloodstream mm -hmm. and was affecting his brain. So this is why he would forget who I was. He didn't know where he was. He didn't know what was going on with him medically and why he would kind of be placing stuff everywhere and, and building these you know, contraptions or whatever and just kind of forgetting a lot of stuff. So we were now faced with the decision of what to do. We really didn't have many options. You know, we weren't going to continue chemo at that point because we were pretty much at the end of that journey. And the only journey that we really had left with him was hospice. You know, at the same time that we were having this discussion, you know, the doctors hadn't talked to him yet about what was going on. They wanted to talk to us first and kind of come up with a plan and then sit down and talk to him. So we did that and he took it pretty hard. You know, we were all kind of in shock about it, that this was, you know, kind of finally the end. Yeah. So we're faced with this decision, you know, of kind of how to best care for him. Um, so we took him home. Um, we did home hospice for a bit. Um, his sister, um, you know, had been retired for some time. Um, she was, came down and stayed with us um, and helped me take care of him. And she would kind of take the day shift and I would kind of take the night shift. I wasn't sleeping much anyway. So we did our best to care for him. His condition deteriorated really quickly. I'm not doing chemo anymore. And basically it was just about keeping him comfortable. You know, every now and then, you know, we would have a little glimpse of John, but for the most part, he wasn't eating or drinking anymore. And we got to a point one night where very uncomfortable. He had tried to get out of bed. You know, every now and then he would still have these moments of like superhuman strength. He 
got himself out of bed and you know we're trying to keep him in and he kind of fought the two of us off got out of bed and he fell you know he was okay he didn't hurt anything but we couldn't get him back up because he kind of almost went like limp he wasn't fighting against us but he wasn't helping us get him up so we called hospice and they came over to help us get him back in bed and as they assessed him they said you know he's at that place you know where he's kind of you know, I think they called it like the official term for it is, you know, like imminent stages of death. And it's not going to be long. Do we want to keep him at home or do we want to transfer him to inpatient? And both his sister and I agreed that it was time for him to go to inpatient. We were no longer able to give him round the clock care that he needed. And emotionally, you know, it took a lot out of both of us. So he was in inpatient care for about a week. It was awful to see him in there. You know, as his body kind of shut down, he couldn't talk to us anymore. We didn't know if he could see us. We didn't know if he could feel if we were holding his hand. They assured us that he could hear us. Hearing is apparently one of the last senses to go. So they always encouraged us to keep talking to him because even if he didn't seem to recognize us or even give any glimpse that he, you know, could hear, that they assured us that he could. You know, and that would be comforting to him. So, you know, folks were in and out to see him, you know, friends and some family that came to give their, you know, say their final goodbyes. Um, and I remember his nephew and his now wife, then fiance, were able to come and see him. And they were able to take some time off really quickly and come see him. And that night, we went to the hospital to see him, and his nephew leaned over. They were always really, really close, and his nephew leaned over and was like, hey, like, it's okay. Like, you can go now. Like, we'll take care of Kim. Like, we've got her. Like, just go, dude. Just go. You don't need to be here anymore. Don't fight this. And, you know, we were like, you know, everyone in the family kind of joked, and they were like, if he's going to listen to anybody who tells him this, you know, it would be his nephew, Tony. And the next morning, as I was getting up, I was just gotten out of the shower and I got a call. You know, I was on my way there to go see him that morning. And I got a call from the hospital that he had passed. He had passed peacefully. You know, he was as asleep as he could be. You know, but that his fight, you know, was over. And it's you know, I guess being a widow was never a club I thought I was going to join, especially at 35 years old. We never even got to celebrate a anniversary together. I was at SOS for our first one, and by the time our second anniversary rolled around, you know, he was already fighting cancer, so it wasn't really a priority anymore. You know, I had made that transition kind of from spouse to caregiver, trying to navigate my career. And it wasn't until after that that I you know, realized how, how I hadn't been caring for myself as well. You know, during that time, my flight doc had pulled me off flying status, following a flight physical. He'd seen physical signs during my flight physical of how stressed I was and then talking to me you know had seen kind of mentally those same signs and emotionally we had always had a deal since I had PCS there that if he ever saw any reason you know to you know step in that I wanted him to you know I had explained what was going on with John you know and I told him I was like if you ever see a reason that I need help, like, just step in. Like, I won't be mad at you. You know, maybe I won't see it. And he had. He finally, he saw that. So he pulled me off flying status. He got me hooked up with a colleague that he knew and trusted as a counselor for someone for me to talk to, you know, which was really helpful. And he put me on medication as well. You know, I was taking Prozac every day. And I had... Uh, Xanax prescription, if I had any bleed through anxiety, you know, that the Prozac couldn't, you know, kind of help manage. 
I didn't need it much, but when I did, it was kind of a godsend. It helped give me the strength to keep helping John and to be there for him and to be there, you know, for family, you know, who was coming in to see him and, you know, kind of navigate his last few weeks with us. It wasn't really until, gosh, maybe 2009 or so, I had PCS'd again to where I'm at now at Barksdale Air Force Base. And I really look back and see how much I had prioritized his health and his well-being over mine. But I look back at those times and I look at them as a source of strength. I was able to get through that. And it wasn't that I didn't need help. We had friends coming over while John was hospitalized. You know, he was in the hospital for those two months. And one of my best friends, still to this day, she and her husband and their kids would come over every day to let our dogs out, to feed them, to play with them without even asking. For two months straight, they took time out of their lives to do this. Another friend who rallied his twin boys and his nephew to come over and clean up our backyard and rake leaves and pulled some other squadron members in to help, you know, just with things around the house. And I look at those times and think, you know, if I could get through that, I can get through anything. Hmm. It was probably one of the biggest challenges of my life. And I think now as I look back, no one's prepared for that. So I learned a lot about giving myself grace. When I'm in a tough situation, you know, I may look back on it and think, oh, I should have done it this way. You know, I should have done it that way. But what I realized going through this was that we're all just out there doing the best we can every day. You're doing the best you can with the information that you have at hand. You don't know how the future is going to turn out. So you just do your best. You do your best with what you've got. And if that day your best is only 80%, then, you know, you give every ounce of that 80%. And maybe tomorrow you'll be back at 100, you know, or maybe tomorrow you'll be at 60. I also learned a lot about sharing what was going on. You know, I mentioned earlier that I took a lot of things on myself because I didn't know how to ask for help. And I thought that asking for help needed to be, you know, this huge thing, you know, it needed to be something massive, but really it's the little things, you know, it's someone bringing over, you know, some groceries for you during, you know, their grocery trip, you know, someone, you know, picking up milk because you're out, someone just stopping by with a meal because you might be too tired to cook that day. You know, those are the little things that can make a big difference you know, kind of for your own daily resilience and that builds strength, you know, long-term. What do you think helped get you through some of the loneliest moments? What helped a lot was during the time that he had first been diagnosed in Minot, I had been moved from an operational bomb squadron to the operational support squadron. So I did not have as many qualifications to maintain. I had a little more control over my schedule, not a ton, but a little more. And I was able to kind of start prioritizing my health a little bit. And in that time, someone invited me to a yoga class and I'd never done yoga before in my life. You know, I didn't even know what to expect, but just the idea of having a night out of the house sounded great. So I went and I fell in love with yoga. And the next thing I knew, I was going as often as I could. I'd come home from work. I would change. I would go to yoga. I would come home and make us dinner. So when I got to Pensacola, I jumped on the opportunity to do a yoga teacher training class, which gave me something to look forward to every other weekend. And I got to meet some folks who were outside of the Air Force, you know, outside of my unit. And... For a while, I didn't tell them what was going on with John because it was kind of my sanctuary to just be. And that was something that I learned through yoga, you know, was to just be in the present. Sometimes to just stop and breathe was enough to kind of recenter myself when I would start feeling stressed out or overwhelmed. But when I did share what I was going through with those folks, they just welcomed me with open arms. 
you know, one of my classmates and, you know, who's become a good friend of mine. She was also a massage therapist. So she came over, you know, when John transitioned to home hospice, she came over and would, you know, just come over to help massage his legs, you know, his arms, you know, help us move him because he, he wasn't moving a lot. So it was these little gifts, you know, that people were able to share when I opened up and allowed them in. But for me as well, just reminding me to breathe reminding me to take one moment at a time. And it also helped me cherish the moments that I did have with John. You know, the moments where he, you know, had a lot of cognitive function left and we could just put a movie on, you know, and kind of laugh together before, you know, he'd he'd get very tired, you know, fall asleep halfway through. But, you know, it would give us a few minutes to spend together. That helped a lot, just this reminder, you know, to breathe and to notice the little things. Because when it comes down to it, it may be cliche, but it's all little things. And it really helped me to cherish the relationships that I have and, you know, to really, you know, find strength in them, to really honor those folks that are close to me and, you know, realize that they are a source of strength as well. And that, you know, there's people that are there for you, you know, when you choose to open up and share the struggles that you're going through. People will be there for you. That helped me a lot. When I listen to your story, I think that there are a lot of moments where one could feel bitterness or anger, resentment. And when you tell the story, you seem to express a lot of gratitude and grace. Does it seem accurate? And if so, why is that? Yeah, I wouldn't say that I haven't felt those moments of, you know, anger or bitterness. There's times where I look back and I, you know, can feel some of the frustration that I felt during those times. But I look at it now and, you know, it's part of my story. It's part of who I am. And... I think we get to write those stories, you know, no one else does. So if I look back on that time, you know, and I don't know that anyone would blame me for looking back on it to be a little angry or a little bitter or a little frustrated. But if I look back on it like that, to me, I'm going to look at every challenge that comes my way the same way, if that makes sense. You know, if I approach what was one of the hardest, the hardest time in my life, with nothing but negative emotions, I feel like that's going to carry over to any challenge I see in the future. And it's going to take away from everything I learned during that point. You know, I don't wish that on anyone. You know, like I said, I never thought I was going to be a widow at 35 years old. And I don't believe that that was put in my path. And that was part of my story to you know, teach me something or to help me grow. I think it was just very unfortunate. It just happened. You know, I'm not going to go back and try to rewrite that story and think, well, what if I had done this? What if I had done that? But I try to use it to learn and to grow. And when I share it, I try to not paint it in a positive light, but I try to look at it, you know, with positive emotions. What did I learn from that? And give myself that grace to realize I did the best that I could with the tools that I had at the time. And I came out on the other side of it. Mm. You know, I'm still here. And I've learned to find my strength by sharing it. I don't know that there's a lot of people that face similar, but they are. You know, I remember at one point looking at statistics in the Air Force and seeing that, gosh, I think it was like 0.003 percent of our active duty and total force troops were widowed you know so I'm not the only one you know there are some other folks out there I don't know if I have that statistic right or if it's still current you know but there were a small number and it wasn't one and there's someone else that's going to face that challenge so I look at it and think if I can show up with you know that same kind of grit and determination and look at that time through a lens of grace and maybe that can help someone else, you know, who hears my story or is going through something similar to know that they too 
you know, can come out on the other side and it's not going to be the end of them. Did you make any significant changes in your life as a result of losing your husband? You know, as I mentioned earlier, you asked, you know, how long we've been married. We put off a lot of things that we wanted to do for so long. You have to find a time every day to shut it down and put work aside because it's going to be there the next day. <laughs> Whether you like it or not, it's still going to be there. There's always going to be more work to do. And you can stay at all hours of the night trying to knock it out, but you can do that the next day and the next day. I've learned to prioritize my own health and nutrition, you know, and take time, you know, even if it's sometimes just taking a walk after work for 10 minutes with one of the dogs, you know, sometimes that's enough. I've learned to look at myself with grace and realize I'm just doing the best I can every day. And I try to look at those around me with that same lens too, and realize that my colleagues and my peers you know, my friends and family are all doing the same every day as well. We're all just doing the best we can. Where we can be there for each other and where we can support each other makes us all stronger. And I think I've learned to cherish the little things. You know, those little moments, you know, that we share with people throughout the day. I've learned to be present. That's something I work on every day. You know, I'm not perfect at it, but, you know, when I'm sharing time with someone, I like to be present with them and hear everything that they're saying and that they're sharing with me, you know, and not be thinking right away, oh, how can I add to this? Or what is something that I absolutely have to share? I kind of be an active listener. And I've learned to just find peace and silence. You know, sometimes just sitting and, yeah, <laughs> you know, just sitting by a lake or by the beach, you know, or somewhere in nature sometimes and just being quiet and enjoying that silence is a great moment to just kind of reset. So I think I've learned to kind of take my time a little bit, <laughs> I think mm -hmm. is maybe the synopsis of that. The last question for today, and that's the same question I ask of all my guests, for those service members who are struggling with difficult times, what do you recommend? Oh, gosh, don't struggle alone. You know, I found so much strength in sharing my story with people. The people around me, the friends and coworkers and colleagues that knew what was going on when, when things got worse for us, John started hospice. I mean, they just leapt into action because they knew what was going on and they allowed me the space to share. You know, if they'd asked me how I was doing and I wanted to answer honestly instead of just that in the hallway, hey, how are you? You know, if I wanted to say not so good, they'd be like, what's going on? And, you know, take me aside and, and sit down and listen. So share with each other, you know, share with the people around you that you trust. You, know, you don't have to broadcast it to everyone, you know, and, and blast it out to social media, you know, not that level, but share with the people that you're close to. You know, everyone has that one, you know, colleague, hopefully at work that you, you know, trust with everything, you know, is there for you, you know, share with your leaders. Share with your supervisor if you're comfortable sharing. Share with your first shirt. You know, share with your command team. Because these people are there to help you navigate through these times. And you don't have to do it alone. The other thing I would definitely share, I know there's a lot of stigma surrounding mental health, especially for military members that may have special clearances or different duty codes. You know, for myself as a flyer who was also on PRP, you know, I had a lot of concerns about being taken off flight status, seeing mental health, taking medications, but all it required was, you know, being off the medication for six months and they were able to put me back on flying status. I was honest about what I needed. They realized that what I was going through, you know, was situational and they were able to give me the help that I needed to give me the strength to carry on and continue through that time. So don't fear those things. Just be honest and be open with people about what you're feeling and experiencing so that you can bring your whole self every day so that you can get better. You would go see the doctor for a broken leg. You know, if you're struggling mentally through a challenging time like this, 
or just through a challenging time in general, or just struggling, go fix those things, you know, go fix the things that we can't see. And take care of yourself, because if you take care of yourself, you're going to be able to take care of all of us together, and your whole team is going to be so much stronger. Thank you for that. This was Major Kim Rigby of Nike and the Blue Grid Podcast. This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid Podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and crit to normalize the airmen's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is anavfedotova.mil at mail.mil. It's A-N-N-A dot V dot F-E-D-O-T-O-V-A dot mil at mail 